0: Jesus says to his disciples in that upper room, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, give us um, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and minds to understand the deep, rich truths here that you're speaking to us. Lord, I pray that by them that you would transform us and you would change us. Most of all, my Lord, I pray that we would see your great love you have for us and it would transform us. It would engender in us a desire. It would initiate in us a great love for you. In your name we pray. Thank you. You could be seated. So Jesus has got his disciples in an upper room. It's hours before um, he's about to be arrested, hours before he'll be tried, crucified, all of those things, hours before his death and he's preparing his disciples for, really for, for his death. But more than that, he's, he's preparing his disciples for his departure. He's preparing his disciples for, as we said last week, for his ascension. That's the part. I'm going to go away. He's going to leave them. I'm going to ascend. But as he ascends, the spirit will descend. And so last week, we said, as we work through this section, we're going to be talking about this because this is what John will say. I mean, this is what Jesus will say in the 16th chapter. It's to your advantage. Like, what is more advantageous to us as a church? If Jesus would have stayed here on this earth and would have lived in Jerusalem, I mean, some of us would say, hey, that'd be pretty cool if we could get on a plane and fly and go to the holy city and go to a holy place and see Jesus, man, that would be cool. But Jesus says that wouldn't be as cool. That wouldn't be as a great of an advantage as it is for him to ascend into heaven, ascend where he sits on a On a throne, reigning and ruling and interceding. And then the second thing is the Spirit descending. And so we talked about that last week, and we talked about those advantages, and we talked about one advantage. The first advantage to Jesus' ascension and the Spirit's descension from the text that we looked at is the Spirit will prepare us, lead us, and empower us for great works. So, works that will require a a divine power, and we talked about that, how Jesus led them to pray in his name. He gave them a new way to pray and new access, and we'll talk even more about that today, but Jesus will, I say, hey, pray that you may do, that you may carry out these great works, that these works have very little to do with miracles and have everything to do with Jesus's mission. That's what he's saying. That's what the divine power you're going to need is because you're going to carry on my mission. Not enough time to hit that again, but Number two, so the first one was the Spirit prepares us, leads us, and empowers us for great works. Number two is the Spirit creates newness in us. New life, a new position, and a new love. And that's where we're going to go in this text. The Holy Spirit is creating in, in Jesus' disciples newness. A new life, new position, and new love. Look with me, if you will, at just verses 18 through, uh, through 20. We'll, we'll kind of chunk this out into two sections. The first section I'm going to spend most of the time on, and this is a part I think that most of us would gloss over, but look at what John writes as Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you, all, you also will live. In that day, a particular day, you Or in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. In that text, in that short text right there, Jesus makes four promises. There's four promises Jesus is making to his disciples. The first promise is that I will not leave you. The first promise is this, that I will appear to you, that I will come to you. That's the first thing. The second thing that Jesus promises in there, just as I live, you too shall live. The second promise is the promise of new life. The third promise that Jesus makes in there is that they will be in him. We'll talk about that. And number four is that they will be, that he will be in them. They will be in him, and then he will be in them. Let's go back and we'll look at the first one. Jesus' promise to come to them, to appear to them. Think about this. After Jesus' resurrection, where did Jesus go? Not after his crucifixion, we won't unpack that to this morning, but after Jesus's resurrection, where did Jesus go? Did Jesus sashay down into the downtown Jerusalem to prove to them that he was resurrected from the dead? Did Jesus go and find Pontius Pilate and say, hey, your inclination was right. I am the son of God. I have resurrected myself from the dead. No, did he appear to the chief priests? No, did he appear to the Roman guards? No, who did Jesus appear to? his disciples. Why did he go to his disciples and not downtown Jerusalem, not to the temple, not to any of those places? Because they were not his concern, but his concern was for his disciples. Jesus appears to his followers. At first, Jesus appears in the garden to a handful of women. Later on, Jesus will appear to all 11. Now, Jesus will appear to a large crowd, Paul records this and I think, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time in a room, but Jesus first goes to his disciples. Jesus first goes to his followers. And when Jesus showed up, when they saw Jesus there, they knew that there was no doubt that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, let me say this as a side note really quickly. This really adds to the veracity of the gospel accounts when you think about this. That the disciples saw a once dead, now alive Jesus Christ. They saw a Jesus, not a ghost, not an apparition. They saw a body, Jesus in bodily form. Jesus shows up on the shore and cooks breakfast for them. We'll get there, I think, in John chapter 20. Jesus shows up in a room and tells Thomas, Thomas, plunge your hand into my side. Touch my na- the, the holes, the, the wounds where the nails were. Jesus shows up to them in a bodily form and tells all of them, to. to or they all see him, that every one of the disciples, all 11 of these men, well, all 10 of the 11 of these men will die in horrific ways based upon their eyewitness testimony. All of the disciples, all of those apostles, the 10 that are left, I, I say all, but John, the, the, the gospel writer here, Uh, Fox's Book of the Martyrs, it records for us that they tried to kill John, they just couldn't do it. Like for whatever reason, God by his grace just preserves John's life. And so John's the only one, even though he's attempted, they attempt martyrdom on John, but he just won't die. But all the rest of the 10 of these men die in horrific ways. Now listen, they die and they go to their graves. They they, they faced horrible consequences based upon not something that they believed, but rather something that they saw. That people are willing to die for a belief all the time. Think about current events. Uh, as I thought about this, two images flooded into my mind. Uh, there's one from history class, and some of you, you will remember this, that like during the Vietnam era, there was a young uh, Buddhist monk that douses himself down with gasoline and sets himself on fire in order to protest Right, the atrocities happening in Vietnam against the Buddhists. Uh, another picture is uh, the young man standing in front of the tanks in, in China in uh, what is it, Tiananmen Square getting plowed up. He's dying for something that he believed in, freedom. Right? He's dying in something that they believed in. That is not what the apostles, the disciples, die for. They don't die for something that they believe in, but rather they die for something that they saw. They saw a resurrected Jesus and that changed everything for them. The apostle Paul will, I mean, the apostle Peter will say this in his second letter that he writes. He says, for we did not not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty And then Peter will be crucified upside down for his eyewitness testimony to seeing and to touching and to being fed by a once dead Jesus. It's important. Like I said, I think that adds veracity to the gospel accounts, but let's go back to the text, the end of the side note. Let's look at this, what Jesus promises. He promises that he would come to them and he does. And he says then on that day, I think that's the day of the resurrection, the day that Jesus is referring to on that day, he's talking about, I'm going to die. And three days later, I will appear to you. I will come to you. You will see me again. But look at what also accompanies that promise. Because I live, that's resurrection. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. That when the disciples saw a post crucified, now resurrected Jesus back from the dead, all of their doubts about his claims were resolved. It was no doubt to them that he was the son of God, that they now knew that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was not acting on his own, that Jesus's resurrection will be the final proof that Jesus was God, that Jesus is, as he said, in the father and the father is in him. And when Jesus says that, that refers to The mystical, spiritual union of the Trinity. Philip has asked, we've already seen it, that Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, wait, Philip, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What Jesus is showing there that he and the Father are one in essence, they're one in divinity, that he is God. That's what he's saying there. And now they know that he is God. Normal humans don't die and then get up out of the grave, right? Normal people, that doesn't occur to them. And they knew in their minds that the Romans knew what they were doing. I mean, these were people that were professional uh, executioners. These were not like just Mutt and Jeff that they picked up out of a crowd and say, hey, put this guy to death. Like, this is what these guys did for a living. They knew how to crucify people. They knew how to torture people. They knew a dead person when they saw one. And even to prove it, they thrust a a spear in Jesus's side. The disciples knew that. They knew that Jesus wasn't asleep. They knew that Jesus wasn't faking it. They knew that he hadn't swooned. He hadn't passed out. They knew that Jesus had died. When they laid him in the grave and they sealed up the grave, in their minds, they thought it was all over. And one day, two days, three days, up from the grave, he arose, right? With a triumph, he arose, victorious over the grave, over Satan, over sin, over everything enemy of God. He rose up victorious, and they saw that, and they knew that on that day, this wasn't just some joker. This wasn't just some Bible teacher. This wasn't just some guru of some sort. This was the Son of God, and he is still the Son of God, who is the triumphant one. In a few weeks, what we're celebrating it today, aren't we? We're going to celebrate Easter. We get to tell that story, the truth of who Jesus is. How do we know who Jesus is? Because he came up from the grave and Jesus says to his disciples, you will know that I am who I've been claiming I've been for the last three years. You will know that all of my teaching and all of my claims are true. You'll know that I'm not just some miracle worker, but rather I am the son of God. I am in the father and the father is in me. How do we know that? We know that. We know that because of his resurrection, but look at what Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. Woo! If I knew any better news than that, I would certainly tell you, but I know no better news than that simple line right there. I mean, if I, had the, if I could tell you crystal ball and tell you that Wildcats win 72 to 68 today, and you'd go, woo! That's still doesn't beat this news right here. If I could give you the winning Powerball lottery ticket, that doesn't beat this right here. No news that I can give you is better than this news. That Jesus a resurrected Christ, who is the son of God, looked at his disciples and said to his disciples, just as I live, you too also will live. Just as Jesus was saying, because look at what it is in the context. He says, just as I am in the Father and the Father's in me, so you also will be in me and I will be in you. The Father bit, again, it explains the mystical, spiritual union of the Trinity. The second part, it too describes a union, a new union, a union of, that we as disciples, that we as followers of Jesus have with Jesus that Jesus' disciples, those who place faith in him, that you and I will be spiritually united to Christ. That we are to be united to Jesus. We are to be united in his death and we will be united in his resurrection. Paul says it like this in Romans 6, which is the sermon today. But Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 6. Oh, that's not Romans 6. This is, though. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he's talking about a sanctified life. He's talking about our obedience. He's talking about us living for Jesus there. They're saying, okay, if there's grace that covers sin, why don't we sin more so that we can get more grace? And Paul's saying, you can't do that. Why can you not do that, Paul? It makes sense to us. And Paul says, here's why. It's because of this, this union that we see. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, your baptism symbolizes this union. This baptism is image of this union. There's a baptism is a ceremony that we have. And that ceremony speaks of a spiritual truth that has occurred when you place faith in Christ. Just like, Those of you in here that have been married, you stood and you had a ceremony where you spoke vows and you said covenant, but actually what's happening there is there is a a new union there. The two of you now become one flesh by that ceremony that you have observed, by those vows that you have spoken, and the rest of your life should be lived out from those vows. All that I have, all that I I had, I gave to my wife and all that she had, which was a like a 1988 Hyundai Excel, I received back from her, right? All, and I, I mean, I didn't have much in, either. I mean, we were 20 years old, right? But everything that I had, she got all of that. Why? Because of that union and that marriage ceremony. It's a picture of that union, the exchanging of rings, the holding of hands, the praying together. It's all a consecration. And what Paul is saying is, in the same way, your baptism, it images several things. It images, yes, your sanctification, that you're being cleansed, you're being washed of your sin, you're being washed of the guilt from your sin. But it's also, Paul says here, it's symbolizing the spiritual union that you have. That just as Jesus has died, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That the water is a watery grave. And we'll say some that, that whenever I baptize my son next week, I'll say, oh my gosh, I can't do it. <clears throat> I'm gonna be a mess next week. Grayson, you have been buried with Christ Jesus. And I'll put him under the water and I'm probably gonna hold that mug under there a little longer than I would some of you. <laughs> right? And I say, son, if you see the light, just that's a good sign. If you you hear screaming and gnashing of teeth, we're going to do it again, right? Well, hold him under there. And then the next part of that text that says, um, we were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the father, we too might walk newness of life. For if you have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's what Je- that's the same thing Jesus is telling these disciples. Just as I live resurrected life you will live with resurrected life newness of life. Now listen. Jesus isn't referring here to when you get to heaven Jesus is referring, again, in context to his ascension and the Spirit's descension. That whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive this newness of life. It's what Paul teaches as well throughout the book of Romans, especially in Romans 6, 7, and 8. He's not talking about a future event when you die and stand before Jesus and see Jesus then. What Paul is referring to here is the Holy Spirit coming upon you and you receiving the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, as we said last week, we said the Father appoints salvation, the Son accomplishes salvation, but it is the Spirit who's applying salvation. He's applying all that the Father has appointed, all that the Son has accomplished on your behalf. So when Jesus accomplishes salvation by his death and by his resurrection, he's now applying that the Spirit, when you receive the Spirit, when you receive Christ, You get the Spirit, and when you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive the newness of Christ. You receive that. You receive this resurrection life because you have been united to Christ. The Holy Spirit applies Jesus' resurrected life to all believers. And what this means is the Spirit brings newness. The Spirit applies Jesus' new life to our old dead bodies, that once we were alive to sin and dead to God, and now through the power of the Spirit, you and I, we are dead to sin and we are alive to God. When he says we were dead to God, what does that mean? Well, throughout the Bible, we see this. In the Old Testament, it talks about that our hearts were stone. That's what he means by we were dead to God. Our hearts were stone. And when the Old Testament talks about a heart, it's not talking about what we love, although that's included in it. You and I, we, we use the word heart to talk about emotion. You know, my wife sends me hearts all the time and that's a beautiful thing. And I wonder what she's saying there, I love you. But whenever the Bible speaks about the heart, it's speaking about much more than the things that we love. Although, like I said, that's included. That whenever the Bible speaks about the heart, it's speaking of the governing disposition of our souls. The heart is the control center of the soul. The heart is the thing that that governs and directs our desires and our intentions and our longings and our concerns. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus and through the present-day ministry of the Spirit, the old heart of stone is removed. That's the promise of the new covenant, that the old heart of stone would be removed and he will implant into us a new heart, a heart of flesh, a new governing disposition will happen in us where we are now dead to sin and alive to God. What this means is that for the person who used to feel indifferent towards God and toward the things of God, he now loves God and delights in the things of God. How does that happen? It's a spiritual miracle that the Spirit brings. It's called regeneration. You being made new, how does that happen? How does it occur? It happens in your heart. Your heart is transferred. You get new longings, new desires, new delights, new things. Newness comes into you. A person who used to resist the will of God, used to resist living a holy life, was obstinate and rebellious towards God and towards the things of God and towards the will of God and towards the commands of God and towards the law of God is now now concerned and he's anxious and he's desirous about the things that God is concerned about. Here at the point, we like to illustrate it by doing this. Oh yeah, it's time. It's been a while, so I just don't want us to forget this. This is the way we illustrate it here. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says, how it works. Is This is you, and inside of you, is sin. Sin is in you. The problem isn't outside of you. The problem is in you. You're not just a victim of sin. You are a sinner. That's what the Bible says. You commit sin. Not because you're forced upon it. Not because you... It's because you desire it. Why do you do the bad things that you do? Because you want to do them. That's why you do them. You long after them. Inside of you, there is something broken in you. And the problem was sin. And the Bible speaks about it like this. Not only are you sin in you, but the Bible says you are in sin. This is, uh, I think Romans, the the fifth chapter, maybe it is. uh, Maybe it's the sixth where he talks about that. No, it's the fifth, that we are in Adam. The same thing, that we are in Adam. That this is every person's position, that they are in sin and sin is in them. Now look at what Jesus is saying. He's talking about a radical transformation. He's talking about something new taking place where first of all, he says, what's gonna take place is no longer is sin going to be in you, but now Jesus, I will be in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be in you. Now I like to say like, you know, this is a bad example because sin's plastic and hard. Like here's how sin works. When it's in there, it corrupts you. It'd be better if I would have filled this full of black, black paint. Right and made a mess up here and poured it out because then there would still be the residual paint residue on the inside. So what's the Holy Spirit in you doing? Well, he's in here doing this number, cleansing you, convicting you of sin and unrighteousness, making Jesus look beautiful to you. He's transforming you and changing you and cleansing you on the inside. And so that's what Jesus says. Whenever you live, how will you live? Because I will live in you. I will be in you. But then there's a second part to this. There's a second part, and the second part is this. Not only is Jesus in you, Jesus says, but you are in Jesus. That when the Father sees you from now on, this is the way the Father sees you, believers in Christ. He sees you in a new position as that you are in Jesus, and Jesus is in you. Now, I want you to think about that for a little bit. The Holy Spirit, through this, through this spiritual union with Christ, The Holy Spirit gives you a new position. Think about this. Whenever you get a new job, right? Whenever you get a new job, you get a new new position, a new position at work. You get a new classification. You get a new title. You get a new identification, right? State workers, what is it you get when you get a new job? You get credentials, right? You get a badge. With a new title, a new classification, all those things. And you got a new badge now, new credentials. And what does that badge get you? It gets you new access. It gets you new privileges, right? It gets you, uh, what else? Uh, it gets you new, uh, new rights. Now, the truth is, a lot of times you get that new position, it goes to your head, right? Look at me, I got this new position. But listen, this new position, it doesn't go to our heads, it goes to our hearts. It's not a new vocation but it's more than that. It's not a new position of authority. It's a new position of love and acceptance. It isn't a new vocation, but it's a new family. You now have Jesus's identity, Jesus's position, Jesus's privileges, Jesus's credentials. And this is key. New life plus this new position with new access and new privileges, it leads to new love and obedience. Put, put your finger there mentally. But I want to tie that together with what Jesus is saying in, back over into John 14. Because in the second part of John 14, Jesus is going to talk a lot about love. The first time he mentions it, actually in verse number 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But then look at what Jesus says, starting in verse number 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, look, takes it back to love. Takes it back to love. If you love me, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will, keep, and we will come to him and make our house with him. Now listen, don't divorce verses 15, 21, 23, and 24 from the rest of Jesus' promises in this paragraph. That one of the works of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit abides in us, is to give us a very real, very experiential sense The father's love for us. We don't have time to go there, but man, first John kind of runs true to everything that that Jesus is teaching here. Like this teaching, John 15, uh, 14, 15, 16, and even the prayer in 17 is so impactful in John's life that John will write another letter under the inspiration of the Spirit, first John. And John, in there, he will be it almost like a commentary of what Jesus is teaching here. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. That's what John wanted us to know is how much we are loved as the children of God. This is so important to us. That one of the present day ministries of the Holy Spirit is to convince you deep in your heart that you are a beloved child of God. Paul says it like this in Romans, the fifth chapter and the fifth verse. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out. It has been poured into our hearts. How? It's through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to make God's love for you known and manifested and even felt and experienced in your life. The Holy Spirit is working. And what is the Holy Spirit doing? And how is he cleansing? Yes, he's cleansing. Yes, he's convicting. How is he doing it? Primarily from a position of love. Primarily from a position of love. The Spirit comes and floods and swamps our hearts. It's a deluge of God's love for us. Romans 8, Paul picks this up again. And he says this, that we have not been given a spirit of slavery where we fall back into fear. But you and I, as children of God, as believers in God, as disciples of God, we've been given a spirit of an adoption whereby we cry out, he says, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, in this. The great work of the Holy Spirit is to bring, is to bear upon our witness, is to witness with with our spirit that you and I, that we are the adopted children of God. This is household imagery, Then in a house, there would have been slaves and there would have been children. There would have been sons in a house. Slaves live in fear of displeasing their master. Slaves live like they must earn God's favor. They must earn the master's trust. But sons live in freedom of the father's love and delight. A slave would say, if I obey, then the master will accept me. But a son says, if I am loved and I am accepted, therefore I will obey. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach them. This is what the Apostle Paul is making known in chapter eight. The question that comes to us is, do you live like a slave trying to earn God's favor and pleasure? Or do you live like a child and simply enjoy God's love? But if you could right now, think about God. I want you to think about God let 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 the thoughts of God enter into your head and if you picture God who is in heaven and now what i want you to picture in your mind is God thinking now about you you're thinking about God thinking about you what thought enters into God's mind when the all-knowing God thinks about you what does he think what enters his mind. I think many of us know that you and I, that we could never earn the father's initial love and grace that's shown to us in our salvation. I think most of us in here, were good Protestants. We'd say, oh, it's by faith that we are saved. This isn't my own work. This is nothing that I did. God loved me. But then what we live like following that is now we think you and I, we gotta keep that love. We gotta earn that love. We gotta continue to earn those rights by the way that we live. We have to keep his acceptance by our own performance, our own grit, our own discipline, our own determination. And here's the problem with that. A love that you feel that you have to earn is never a love that you'll ever enjoy and delight in. Because if you gotta earn that love, then you can unearn that love. A love that you feel like you have to earn is also a love that you can somehow Unearned, And if you feel like you've got to earn that love, it's never going to be a love that you can truly delight in. Because what if you do something and the Father's now displeased with you? And he stops loving you. He casts you aside. What the Bible says for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that can't happen. The Father can't unlove you. But listen, what the difference between believers and unbelievers. And, and my son, Grace, and I, we got to have this conversation. Grayson made Regenerate Sunday night. I and mean, we evidence of that. We see that. On Tuesday, he goes to school and he starts telling his friends about Jesus. Starts witnessing to his friends. He comes home and he's like, Dad, this girl. I asked this girl if she knew where she going to spend eternity. She's like, I'll be in heaven. And he goes, how do you know that? She said, because God loves me. And he comes back and he goes, Dad, that's true. God does love her. So what do I say there? I like, look, look, what determines heaven and hell for you isn't whether or not God loves you. It's whether or not you love God. Go back and ask her, okay, God does love you, but what do you do with that love? Do you receive it and do, or do you spurn it? Do you receive it? Because if you receive God's love, then you will accept God's son, Jesus Christ. That's throughout the gospel of John. We've seen that a dozen times. If you know God, and know God's love for you, then what you're going to do is you're going to receive God's son, his gift of his eternal love made manifest in his son, Jesus. What do you do with that? And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching right here. If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. If you receive my love for you, you, you if you really truly receive it and really truly understand it, then it will, it will turn into a love for him. Listen, dear Christian we have another minute or two. But listen, your obedience, because that's in the text, how you live, what you do with your lives, the thoughts that enter your lives, what your, your, your moral choices are in this text. Your obedience, your obedience, Christian, will affect your communion with God, but it will not affect your union with God. Your obedience will affect your assurance of God's love, but not God's actual love. Your obedience will affect your fellowship with God, but not your adoption. Your obedience does not prove that God loves you, but it does reveal whether or not you love Jesus and whether or not you genuinely understand his great love for you. That obedience to Jesus is not Obedience to Jesus is the evidence. Obedience to Jesus is the evidence of your love for Jesus, not for Jesus' love for you. I think some of us, if we are honest in our assessment of our lives, we know that there are areas of our lives where we are disobedient that many of us, we are oftentimes beset with nagging and habitual sins, anger and addiction and laziness and sins of commission, things that we do and things that we think and things that we desire to do and the sins of omission. We get lazy in our pursuit of God and the things of God and in doing good works and in sharing our faith and in reading our Bibles and all of those things that, but know this, the key, the key to victory over our sinful outbreaks and our sinful longings and our simple habits is to know the love of God. That's why Paul prays for the church at Ephesus like I read earlier in our prayer. I pray that you're strengthened with the Spirit in your inner being. I pray that you would know that, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you would be rooted and grounded in love. You have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. That's everything you could think about. As fast as the cosmos, as deep as the oceans. That's what he's saying here. That's how much you were loved in Christ. It's a truth, he says, a knowledge that surpasses our even our understanding. We can't even fathom how much Jesus loves us. Let me wrap up here. Number one, do you live with a felt knowledge of the, love of, of the love of God for you? Do you live with a felt experiential knowledge? And again, it's a knowledge that you can experience. Romans 5.5, 5, I know we're good Baptists. We don't talk about experiencing the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is an experience. When Paul goes to the city of Ephesus, He's got a bunch of, there's a bunch of converts there. And Paul asked him, he says have you experienced, have you, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they're like, the Holy Spirit? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus is, I mean, Paul's asking him there about an experience. Did you experience the Holy Spirit? How do I know whether or not I've experienced the Holy Spirit or not? Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit sheds abroad. That's what he says. He pours out the love of God. He makes it manifest. You experience God's love in your heart, in your soul. Have you, do you live with a felt knowledge of the love of God for you? Charles Spurgeon said this, When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. Let me ask you, when's the last time you experienced God's love for you from the Holy Spirit? When's the last time you felt God's specific love for you? Where you just knew in that moment, man, God loves me. I'm his child and he loves me. It's by grace that I'm experiencing, but he loves me. When's the last time you felt that love with your name attached to it? God never felt that. You can, you can. What? What? Romans five five. You can. John Flavel, he was an influential Puritan writer. I think they call him Flavel Flave. He's the Puritan that had the big clock around his neck. Some of you got it. Thank you. Thank you. John Flavel. You'll never forget his name now, will you, Clint? He was very influential. His writings were very influential on Charles Spurgeon, and we'll see that. But John Flavel wrote this. And again, when you think about the Puritans, you think of stodgy old men. But listen what he wrote. Ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul, and they promote sanctification. We were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration and the christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heart warming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not as he ought from the spirit of god the soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. The believer is in danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring the felt comforts of a a Savior's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. By the enjoyment of the love of Christ in the heart of of a believer, We mean an experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. Because the Lord has made himself accessible to us in the means of grace, it is our duty and our privilege to seek this experience from him in these means until we are made the joyful partakers from it. Let me close here, three things. How do I experience this? How do I know that God loves me? How can I taste of that love? Well, number one, know this, that the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit in this experience is for every believer. Not just for the spiritually elite, not for folks who got their junk all together. It is for every believer. The promise of the Holy Spirit comes for every believer. Number two, it may take some time. You need to learn how to linger, with the Holy Spirit, to stay in a place. I mean, I know in my own Christian walk that I have, I've sat under preachers. There was a preacher one time by the name of Ray Ortland, and I was at a conference somewhere and Ray Ortland just knocked off a scab. And man, that mug started to bleed profusely in my heart. And a bunch of my friends were like, Andy, let's go. Hey, we're gonna go here to eat. We're getting hot wings. You've been talking about hot wings the whole time. But man, I felt like what the Lord was doing in my heart was important. And I was like, hey, guys, I just need to go back to my hotel room. And I just need to sit. And I need to soak. And I need to linger. And I need to pray. And I need to confess some sin to my wife, too. In that moment, man, the Lord did a great work in my heart. Did a great work of healing our marriage. I may not have experienced it had I ran off. You need to learn how to just linger with the Spirit. For some weeks after we preach here that you may feel that. may feel like, well, we gotta go here, Walmart, all that. No, it's okay to say, hey, you know what? I need to go home for a little bit and I just need to pray. You need to linger when you got your Bible open. Linger, learn how to linger with the Holy Spirit. And when it comes, maybe you need to also do this. Maybe you need to repent. Repent of the ways that you've quenched the Spirit. You've grieved the Spirit. You've neglected the Spirit. Maybe you've been living in open rebellion to God. Maybe you have a chronic and habitual sin. And therefore, you live with a chronic and habitual grieving of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you need to repent of that. It's at this point, probably, that you're going to want to quit and leave and get up. But stay there. And pray and ask the Lord, the third thing, for a specific sense of the Father. So love for you. Love with your name on it. Ask As Jesus promised, ask the Father for the good gift that is the Spirit, that he would give that to you. And he would give you, in a real way, assurance of his great love. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Listen, our obedience is not the evidence of Christ's love for us. The cross is. Jesus' body broken. Jesus' love spilled. That's something objective. That is proof that God loves you. Jesus will say in just a few moments in this text, no greater love has any man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus has done for us. As we come even today, may Jesus' great love, may it, Engender and initiate and provoke a great love in us and from our love from Jesus. For our, from our love for Jesus, may we live obediently. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you've made it manifest to us. We don't have to guess about it. You've made it something that is objective and personal. It is objective. We see it here. We see it in what this bread and this cup represents. No one can walk away and say, does God love me? Look. The question is, do we love you? May we this morning with open hands, may we receive this by faith and may we with new affections and new intentions Cast our love upon you, a love greater for other things. May we say that we love you and may we live obedient lives. May this fuel our obedience to you. In your name we pray, amen.